Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. We're actually here in person. I'm touching Bill's knee right now. It's the first time we've ever done this in the same room. And I'm really excited because it means um, instead of having an audio lag through cell phone reception problems, I can stare into Bill's beautiful periwinkle blue eyes. They're not blue. I don't know if periwinkle is. They're hazel. I don't know. (laughs) It does mean that we don't have two separate tracks we're recording on. And there's also my sister's cat uh, making friends with Joel, which means this may be a slightly more chaotic episode of the big readcast than you're used to. Also, speaking only for myself, I have had bourbon. So. <laughs> I am on my way to having bourbon <laughs> upon bourbon. So this is one of my favorite podcasts to record, if not my favorite, because we get it kind of play loose and fun. It's our year in reading podcast for 2023. We're not like all those fakers who publish stuff in tw- November or even the end of December. We wait until it's actually the new year. And then we forget about it, and then we we follow up with each other, and we actually publish the thing after we finished all of our reading for 2023. One thing that will come up, one thing that will definitely come up multiple times, is that I did not read very much. Bill, for him, for his record, didn't read very much either, but he read twice as much as I did. (laughs) So it's going to be fun. Um, We usually do stats about how many hours we spent talking about books and how many, you know, words we read this year. We have none of that because we know it's a lot less than usual. Um, but we're still excited to be here, right, Bill? I'm not. No, I hate this. I'm here <laughs> under duress. No, that's, yeah, we're excited. Kind of true. <laughs> this, this is going to be a good time. Uh, but I agree. We both read less this year than we usually do, and that's because life is complicated, and uh, I don't feel like we need to make any excuses. So um, we also did not exchange lists as quickly as we usually do. So I, I often, for this, I have a list of five or six uh, books I want to ask Joel about, which are always the books that Joel read and didn't want to have a public opinion about. It's really Correct. very fun. Yeah, every Joel's time. Like, I read this and I have a controversial opinion. And I'm like, tell me now. And he's like, no. And it's we edited it out. Well, actually, I don't think we've ever done that, actually. We but. haven't edited. You know what? We've, I've edited it out only pretty much um, when I ramble too much and I, I find it annoying. Um, I have edited out name dropping. Because I went to a I went to a, a Syracuse you know MFA program. He's gonna edit this out. Yeah, later. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's funny because it's one of those things where like there's no good way to do it because I'm not actually in that culture anymore. But I still like my mental space is still filled with these people who are you know doing cool things. No, it is a good bit because Joel will just be telling a story about like college except graduate school, and he'll say when I was in graduate school with Charles Dickens, and then later on <laughs> when I get the uh, edited podcast back after he's taken a look at it, it, it removes the name Charles Dickens, and I think it's a shame. Yeah. Everyone should know that Joel studied with Charles Dickens. Yeah, he was a complicated father to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, so let's uh, let's let's keep it simple. First of all, we're gonna do like the book club version of all of these books we read and talk about the most superficial things we can before making Bill talk about Gene Wolfe's masterpiece <laughs> for approximately twenty minutes. But we'll start off light, and I the answer to this might be Gene Wolfe, but you don't don't actually go there yet if you're not ready. But what what book? stands out from the list this last year that you read what do you kind of like without you know having to even search too hard what did you love reading and maybe even like what was your favorite read that or what was the most surprising read something like that so i think the answer to this year is uh 
I mean, definitely the most important book I read this year was the four or five part, depending on how you want to count novel, The Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe. We're going to put that aside because it's complicated. But the other weird standout thing for me this year is actually Anne Rice, which is not a sentence I figured I was yeah, going to be uttering. Yeah, actually, I'm stunned uh, in, in, in the studio. <laughs> that's true. I looked at him. He looked at me like, are you sure? Uh, no. Uh, so, so my fiance, Julia, and I decided to spend some time this year reading uh, books to each other that the other one cared, well, that we cared a lot about, right? And so I, uh, we had started, I guess, last year a little bit. And I think we talked about this in the podcast a bit. I read her Piranesi by Susanna Clark, and then she read me um, Jitterbug Perfume by... Tom Robbins, Tony Robbins. One of those is a motivational speaker, and the other one's an author. I don't think it's Tony Robbins. I think it's Tom Robbins is the guy's name. Um, anyway, we might edit that out later. You never know. Definitely not. But Jitterbug Perfume and Piranesi. But then we decided to alternate back and forth, and I read her three Connie Willis novels. I read her uh, Doomsday Book, Passage, and To Say Nothing of the Dog. And she read me uh, the first three of Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles, which is Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Lestat, and Queen of the Damned. And I was expecting to have a good time, right? Because, you know, it's yeah. vampires, whatever. Yeah. I was a little surprised by how much I actually really appreciated, <laughs> particularly the first two novels in that trilogy. I don't, or, uh, it's not a trilogy. Anne Rice wrote like 12, 1500 books in this series, but the first three do sort of fit together as a loose trilogy. Yeah. And the first two in particular, I, I enjoyed much more than I was expecting to. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that she was one of the great prose stylists of the 20th century, but honestly, Interview with a Vampire and the Vampire Lestat, I'm calling it They Rock. They rock. I'm telling you that. They're good. They're they're good books. So can I... I've never seen the movie. Uh, Interview with the Vampire is good. Um, there was a movie adaptation of Queen of the Damned, which is... Um, with uh, Asha? Or... Alia, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Stuart Townsend, who, if you're me, you know from two things. You know that he was briefly Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings before he actually quit because he thought he was doing a bad job. And having seen his performance in Queen of the Damned, I think he was probably right. <laughs> the other thing I've seen him in is he played Dorian Gray in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which was also not what you would call a great career-defining performance. Uh, but he plays Lestat in Queen of the Damned, and Alia plays the Queen of the Damned. And the movie is possibly the worst film I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Um, Queen of the Damned is definitely the weakest of the three Anne Rice books I've described, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because it's the silliest. But Lestat, who's this vampire who was born in, I don't know, 1730, something like that, and becomes a vampire before the French Revolution, and is this weird sort of aesthetics-obsessed, romantic, jerk vampire, who I, I totally believe, by the way. I, I, actually, I really like him in the first two books. Yeah. He's, he's a monster, but he's great. Um, but he, like, goes to sleep for a while, like vampires do. They're like, I'm bored with life. I'm going to go sleep in the ground for a while. And he wakes up in the novel to the sounds of basically, like, Black Sabbath, right? like a 1980s rock band playing. Okay. And he's like, this is fun. They're loud, they're obnoxious, and they're singing about demons and stuff. I should go hang out with these cats. <laughs> and that part of the novel is really, really fun. In the Queen of the Damned movie, which comes out in, I want to say 2001, roughly, that's roughly right. Uh, of course, you know... Is it Ska? It's worse than Ska, my man. <laughs> so it's because, like, you know, black, like, like heavy metal that's a little bit about demons is over, right? Which means what... The genre of music that he hangs out with and becomes a singer for is new metal. Oh, gosh. The band that he wakes up to is basically playing corn. And I say basically, the person who overdubs his voice for the singing in the movie is Jonathan Davis, the lead singer of corn. And, you know, uh, my fiance is very, very much has a, a, deep, a deep amount of love for this era of music, so I shall keep my main thoughts to myself. But I will say, 
it makes more sense to me that a vampire would hear something like Black Sabbath and be interested in it than that a vampire <laughs> would hear, say, Slipknot and be interested in it. Anyway, the movie's terrible. It's terrible for many reasons. It gets many things wrong. And one of the things it does wrong, so, so it, this is silly, but this is, I, actually, honestly, again, I'm not kidding. Like, the two main things I read last year that I'm, like, really thinking about are Gene Wolfe and Anne Rice. And I did not think that was the case, but it is. So in The Vampire Lestat, the second Lestat book, it's about his whole life. Um he talks about how he became a vampire and in, the, in this dumb movie, right? Like this, this like weird sort of ancient Roman vampire shows up and sort of thinks he's pretty and like inducts him into being a vampire and it's not very good. That character exists in the book, but the character who actually turns him into a vampire in the book is so much cooler. He's this guy named Magnus. He goes to where Lestat's being a th like in the theater in, in pre-revolutionary Paris and he does sort of fall in love with him because he's young and pretty, but he kidnaps him and we later learn that Magnus became a vampire, not because someone else like fell in love with him and decided yeah. he should become a vampire, but because he was like an alchemist in like the 13th century, learned about vampires, captured a vampire <laughs> chained him to like the equivalent of the radiator and like pulled his blood out to like drink it to become a vampire and that is so much more cool than the version that exists in this dumb movie this is like, how you and i became friends that's exactly that's, it yeah like ninth, ninth grade you were like I'm, joel come to my house <laughs> and then i chained joel to a radiator and hit him until he decided to be my friend and here we are 20 something years later no but like that's the sort of like Anne rice is willing to lean into like all the sort of absurdity of these vampires and yeah. all of the like uh you know, weirdly violent things they do in a way that the movie just can't. And I'm not, again, I'm not, I don't want to overstate it. The books are not perfect, but I had so much more fun with particularly the first two than I was expecting to. And so I will, I will defend the interview with the vampire and the vampire will start against all comers. They're fun. They're silly, but they're, they're actually kind of moving in places because there's just not a shred of irony in either of them is one thing. Like she plays them so completely straight and I respect that. And you know, you couldn't do it today, but also so many of the vampire tropes that we're sort of making fun of, she made them up, right? Like, all the, all the later vampire movies and stories that are sort of like, oh, look, it's making fun of vampire tropes. That is Anne Rice. And yeah. so I respect them. The Tom Cruise Brad Pitt movie is worth watching. The uh, book is better, but it's worth watching. Um, I have not watched the new AMC TV show, uh, Interview with the Vampire, right. that I've heard really good things about, but I have not watched it. So anyway, like I, said, I don't want to go to the mat too hard for these books, but I was expecting them to be awful because I had heard... <laughs> descriptions of what happens in later Anne Rice novels, and I don't think I'm going to like those. But those first two in particular were honestly really quite fun. The third was a lot sillier. But, yeah. yeah. Anne Rice and Gene Wolfe, that's me. All right, Joel, who did you read this year that no, mattered? No, Anne Rice and Gene Wolfe <laughs> sums up. <laughs> this a is the Bill Coberly experience. <laughs> <laughs> also, I feel like you being nice about corn on this podcast is like the equivalent of me being nice about Brene Brown on the last podcast. Yes, I think that's correct. <laughs> I actually, that's actually something else I cut out, which is like, people in my life have been really helped by Brene Brown, it feels like. So I didn't want to take pot shots at her. But honestly, if you have to read too much of her, it's hard not to go insane. Yeah, I mean, um, is my theory. Years ago, I went to a therapy session when my life was exploding, and I went to talk to a therapist, and he was very nice. But what he basically ended up doing was saying, watching these two TED Talks and Call Me in the Morning, and they're both Brene Brown <laughs> things. I did watch them. I was being very polite. But, you know, they, they failed to revolutionize my life. Yeah. Um, perhaps that is my fault. Maybe instead of, maybe, maybe if they'd gone to, like, 40 minutes instead of 20 minutes. <laughs> that might be it. That would have made it better. <laughs> the, time, the time on TED is too, too slow. Um, so what, so what, okay, what stands out to me? That's a good question. I read a lot of, I didn't read much this year. I read a lot of kind of, I feel like I had a very weird jumping around year. Um, but truthfully, one thing that stands out is actually a book that I, I actually wasn't, I wasn't going to talk about this either, to be honest. Um, <laughs> well, it's a really, so I don't, I don't read a lot of like strict nonfiction, like kind of like reporter nonfiction, you know, 
and, and a lot of that's because so I'll give an I'll give a negative example first. I read um, the internet is not what you think it is by Justin E H Smith, and this came from an article he wrote for the Point magazine that is awesome. It's great. It's about how like instead of you know technology technology is the next stage of capitalism whatever like and instead of kind of you know you know exploiting our labor it exploits our lives right there's a way in which it's you know not only exploiting our lives for ads and so forth but it's also condensed all of life to one device you know you're socializing your entertainment your you know your dating all of it's happening through your phone and kind of the vast implications of that which no one will be you know no one will be kind of like revolutionized by the fact that he thinks this is maybe not the best development. His book is almost interesting because he, he ends up writing it through the pandemic. So the end of it, he actually kind of has this very like beautiful picture of the internet at its best as this window, this kind of like philosophical window that you look throughout onto everything, which, you know, philosophers have basically theorized forever. If there's a window we could look through and see the whole world, wouldn't that be wonderful? But the book is actually, it's just, I don't know, like, I, I think it's one of those things where you realize how important editing is, to be honest. <laughs> like, this guy, is, he's smart, but the book just, it just falls apart. Like, the first chapter is, is just the point essay reworked into a book chapter. And then after that, he just is not, he doesn't know how to stay on track. Like, he just wanders all over the place, which is fine, like, if he's writing a blog, but it was a book. Anyway, my point is, is that most nonfiction, for me, you can usually sum, like, it just feels like every time I read it, it's like, this should have been a 20-page article. This should not be a 200-page book. That's most things. But a book I read this year that um, it's called Ashley's War by Gail Samak Lemon. She's a journalist. It, the book is about, at one point in the Middle Eastern wars that America have been in, um, basically special forces, both the Ranger Battalion and the, the Green Berets, they needed, um, they needed backup um, culturally in dealing with women. They would go and they would knock down doors and they would be in these houses and they couldn't talk to the woman. They couldn't get information from the woman. And so women can't be in these parts of the army or parts of the military period. And so they had to figure out like, okay, there's this real cultural problem where like we're dealing with a population where the women won't speak to us and they have a lot of the information. We need to get basically, they call them cultural support team, women into the special forces. And so it's a book about that, and the book is called Ashley's War, because Ashley's a young officer who um, dies at war in one of these combat missions. And I, I thought about it a lot because I, I still think it's funny that, you know, um, the, Afghanistan, the Afghanistan War and the Iraq War, they're like, they're the most written about American wars, like, while they've happened, ever. Like, we've written, there, there's so much been written about them for websites and on books it's 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 vastly like like you know vietnam was the first televised war it's way more like all of the stuff you see online you can go watch you know like um shane gillis a comedian apparently has a whole bit about this like where you can just go and watch the war happen through gopros that both sides the taliban and you know we both filmed this right anyway my point is though is that it's like it's like everything else there's actually too much information and not enough information and so my siblings are veterans. Um, my sister actually was on a, a similar kind of team when she was in Iraq. Um, and my cousin, who's a special forces guy, I kind of told him the book I was reading. And he was like, oh, well, he was in special forces, so he knew, he knew these women. He was like, oh, they exist because of, like, your sister and three other women who were doing this work and not getting credit for it. So that's a book that stuck with me for kind of personal reasons. But it, honestly, it was one of the best Iraq war books I've read. 
And I do think it's one of the bizarre factors of our life, especially in this moment with all the terrible war stuff happening right now. Terrible war stuff thing has been has been happening for 20 years. And I know a certain part of the left feels like they've carried the banner on, you know, decrying that. But actually, it does feel like your average citizen and even your non-average citizen, your your educated citizen, they don't care about it. They don't know about it. So forth, so on. So it's not the book that I thought I would pick out because it, you know, it was a good read, but it was pretty much just journalese. But it's also one of the first nonfiction books I've read in a while that felt like it deserved to be 180 pages or whatever. So, yeah. Well, for, for, I read that as high praise because I agree. There's an, there's no shortage of of books, nonfiction books I've read that had an interesting premise, and that was it. Um, yeah. Not so much this year, I don't think, but in the last several years, I felt like I've I picked up a book because I read an essay exactly in Harper's or something, and I was like. I want to read the whole book of this, and it's just the whole book with some more examples. Same the essay with more examples. I'm not going to name yeah. the names here because that's not very nice, but <laughs> it is a shame. I will note that one of the first books we did on this podcast was in defense of flogging, which I think did it right because it was like 70 pages yep. long and was it was I think even in the podcast we said it was maybe too long, but it was, it was <laughs> but it was always closer to right than most of these. <laughs> no, honestly, every every good nonfiction book that I've read is almost always like a bunch of essays that have been magazine edited because magazine editors go way harder than book editors. Yeah, the, the editing at a magazine yeah. is way more intense. Okay, so continuing our, our book club vein here. Yeah. A book that you would like to forget. A book I would like to forget? Man, what a if good possible. question. <laughs> All right, got to give me a second here. I really hope you say Anne Rice again, actually. That would be really funny. <laughs> no, I, you know, okay. I don't know if I would like to forget this book, but I wanted this book to be a lot better than it was, and it wasn't. And, uh... He, this guy's fine, so I'm okay. It's okay for me to make fun of him. David Grand, you know, he wrote uh, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, yeah. which just got turned into that big Scorsese movie that I failed to see. I really want to see it, but Same. I failed to. Uh, he wrote a book this year, last year, 2023, called The Wager, which is about a, a deeply fascinating story about this ship that uh, got wrecked and the, the, the crew of the ship ended up mostly surviving and being trapped on this island and, like, elaborate mutinies and just a really clearly fascinating story and i say clearly fascinating story because the book itself was not fascinating and this book uh did pretty well uh i think it was on president obama's list of like his favorite books he read that year i mean i bought it in the airport so it must have been doing fairly well um and it was all right but it, it completely failed to boy i'm i don't want to be this mean to this book it was no, fine no but like it just didn't grab me at all and it there's two reasons for that one of them is about me one thing the book is about is about how much it really deeply and abidingly sucked to be a sailor on an early 19th century late which, 18th century which you, you you know nothing about right well and that's true but i have read that before right like i, I knew that already and that's not it's not fair to be mad at this book for telling me things i already knew but i think what you got past that it was just a pretty straightforward recitation of what happened which has its value, right? But the book is kind of written in a more sort of almost novelistic style. Like yeah. he's trying to say like, you know, Captain So-and-so is standing on the edge of the ship and looking out over the sea and he must be thinking about X, Y, and Z, which is a perfectly legitimate way to do this kind of project. But David Grant, at least in this book, I think failed to do enough of a sort of novelistic approach to it. If yeah. he's going to do that, if he's going to kind of dramatize the scenes, I need him to do it better than he did. And if it's just going to be a recitation of facts and court cases, then I need more of that. And... So this is you know the book was fine like I I learned stuff from it and it's certainly an interesting story but it it completely failed to be what I wanted which was either a really nitty gritty like deep into the weeds recitation right. of the story or something a little bit more emotionally resonant I guess and I think it failed to do both of those things um, you know and also like yeah like I've read like Colin Woodard's Republic of Pirates which made it 
much clearer to me, I think, just how bad it was to be a British sailor for, you know, 250 years and uh, did a better job, I think. Maybe yeah. that's just maybe that's just me. That was the book I read first. Like, maybe that's not fair. But he would say things like you would take your whole crew on in England and then sail to the Caribbean. And by the end of that journey, one third of the sailors would be dead. And David Grant didn't say that sort of thing. And <laughs> that was very persuasive to me. Be like, Oh, yeah, maybe the pirate societies i'm not saying they were good but maybe they were definitely better than the other guys because this feels like the english were just straight up the bad guys here never mind treatments of natives never mind you don't have to get to that far before they're the right, bad guys you right. see what i'm saying <laughs> anyway um so i don't know if would like to forget the wager might be too strong but it is definitely the book looking at my list now that i am the most yeah i don't care about this at all about i would i wish that i had more brain cells to give what I what I had as a I, I had a hot take about the Killers of the Flower Moon not being as good as everyone thinks it is when I read it a few years ago. It's not because of the story. It act, it actually is in some ways the perfect illustration of like incredible premise. The details I remember so well are you know kind of worth a, a really good book, and it's it's a pretty good book. It's a, it's an okay book, and it it really there's there's like a writing problem. There's a writing problem that I, I feel like no one else talked about or was bothered by. And I it felt like, you know, the writing problem was in some ways the same problem that every nonfiction book has, which is like, I bet you when this was, you know, 20,000 words for The New Yorker, it was perfect. Yeah. And then he made it into 60,000 words or whatever, 90,000 words, you know, and it's it's just, it got watered down. And even even worse, like, and the Kills of the Flower Moon, which I don't remember well enough to get too specific, but... He, he talks about, you know, the conspiracy to basically, you know, murder and defraud, you know, Osage, Native Americans. But but it is a weird way in which, like, he really does just talk about a lot of disparate things. He talks about them too much. And he never actually shows, like, a conspiracy. He just kind of, I don't know, it's, it's this weird thing where it's like he, he both he both underestimates how insidious what was happening. Because in some ways, like, it was more insidious than just a bunch of guys, like, twirling their mustaches. <laughs> you know, like... It was a bunch of people separately doing the same terrible thing, which is almost like a, a worse indictment of what was happening. He has just no interest or curiosity in that stuff. Um, but also, he was um, he was at a neighboring library's he was neighboring library's one book like their like one book selection this year, and apparently um, they sold out the auditorium. But also, he did the thing that famous authors do, which I hate, which is like he would only sign his new book. Oh, what? Come if you on. if you brought his old book, he wouldn't sign it. Which I think is garbage. You can't do that. No. It's terrible. You know who doesn't do that? The worst man in the world, James Patterson. Even he doesn't do that. And no, he's, he'll sign anything, I'm sure. And yeah. he's actually the devil. <laughs> Sorry. I remember uh, years ago, uh, Ian Bogost. This is not like a hot take about a celebrity anyone cares about. <laughs> but uh, Ian Bogost, who was a professor at Georgia Tech. I forget where he is now. Who we're going we're, we're to tag him, by the way. So we're going to tag him, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, Ian Bogost, who's a, a games uh, like a games studies expert, uh, professor is the word expert. Yeah, Oof. Uh, and a really interesting writer. Uh, he he came to Savannah when I was living there years ago, and he was giving a talk about I don't even remember what. And I showed up with a copy of an old book, and I will say he signed it and he called me a beautiful flower. Granted, <laughs> he didn't mean it like that. I asked him to sign it, and he said yes. Every reader is like a beautiful flower, and then he. Looked at me awkwardly, and I looked at him awkwardly, and he signed my book, and we went our separate ways. But uh, which was that was this is an excuse to tell that funny story no, about he, this, this he, famously grumpy man. But like, <laughs> he he remembers that he probably you, does. You don't call a random reader a beautiful flower and not think twenty years later. What was I? Can't what was I, I thinking? Actually, the best the best I I've gone to like no author talks. They don't interest me really. 
um, in a lot of ways, which I think everyone always finds, you know, funny. It's like, oh, you're you're a writer. You love lit stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's why I don't want to hear them talk <laughs> about anything that they've thought. <laughs> but um, the one I went to was when I was at Syracuse, we found out that Dennis Johnson, before he died, was going to be at Cornell. And Not so we, after he died? It was right before he died, though. <laughs> Just to clarify, <laughs> we went to this seance. <laughs> Dead gummit. Uh, and he, uh, anyway, so he was alive somehow. Um, this is the sort of hard hitting banter you don't get when we're in separate rooms, by the way. This is the, the premiere experience. We're going to put this episode behind a paywall. We're gonna... <laughs> the, the lag is too great for this. I'm real, yeah, unusual. But anyway, so we went to see Dennis Johnson, fully living, and he, um, uh, my friends, brought um, a collection of his poetry. Dennis Johnson was a poet before he was America's, at the time, living greatest uh, short story writer. Uh, sorry, George Saunders, you're also up there. But, um, and again, he, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, he wasn't selling out, you know, like arenas or anything, but the, 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 the building was full. He signed everything that came to him. It was, a, I don't know, I, I just feel like humility goes such a long way in those situations because he actually was one of America's greatest writers. And he was just like happy to talk to people, happy they read his work, so forth, so on. These people who write, write for the New Yorker and get big deals and won't sign a book that they wrote five years ago, it's insane to me, which is a weird caveat that I'm throwing in here for no reason that will not help my career. No, but I got to be clear. I didn't know this fact. Uh, I actually couldn't really imagine someone doing this, but I hate David Grant now. Previously, <laughs> I thought he just like wasn't that good, but now, no, I, he's will, our, he's our enemy. I will spit on him if I see him, oh because my gosh. this is awful. You he, can't do this. <laughs> he's the anti-Francis Spufford. We found him! <laughs> we have we have the patron saint and the patron devil. And it's David Grant. <laughs> it's David Grant. I you know, wouldn't have called that at the beginning of the yeah. episode. I would have said Michael Moorcock might have been better, but no, I agree. Yeah. I bet Michael Moorcock signs copies of I, Elric if you I bring him to him now. I bet he does. does. I bet you he does. <laughs> All right. Uh, did you have a book that you wish you hadn't read slash wish you'd forgotten? You know, it's funny. I, I actually, I don't wish I, I could forget it. It's more that I regrettably find it forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> There's this great book that I wanted to read forever. It's like a coffee table. It's not, it's like a little small book, but it's like a, you know, read it on the toilet kind of book, to be honest. It's like, you know, bedside, five minute little entries. Um, excuse me. And so it's a, a field guide to the English clergy. It's written by a current English clergyman who goes through all the eccentrics of the Anglican church and talks about the crazy things they did. Like, you know, um, you know, uh, the Russell Terrier, who's named for Jack Russell, the priest, who was just a sportsman who rode around annoying people with his dogs. <laughs> and so there's, there's all kinds of amazing details. But it was one of those books where, like, I like it wasn't just that I can't remember stuff now, all these like little quirky things. I I would read an entry and be like, that's funny. Like, I, the guy, a guy sang as a mermaid one time. Like, he would go, he like swam out to a rock, and an English you know, priest, and would put a mermaid costume on and would sing. That is funny. But I, the day after I read it, I could not remember anything he had written. It was like Wikipedia level writing mm. about interesting stuff, but the writing itself wasn't memorable. So it was one of those things like, this would be a great gift, a gift book that I'll give people in the future, probably, but it was not a book that I. I enjoyed as much as I wanted to, to be honest. Um, and it was forgettable more than I, more than I wanted to forget it. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, which which book do you? This may get us into Gene Wolfe territory, which is okay. Which book do you think you're gonna have to reread? Yeah. So um, you can give other answers first if you need to. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a little detour here 
for... Actually, no. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give us a really interesting answer that is also not correct, because the book I'm going to have to reread is The Book of the New Sun. <laughs> but instead, I'm going to talk about a book that I am apparently going to read once a year for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, which is Piranesi by Susanna Clark, which we have talked about on this podcast before. This is the fourth year in a row I have read Piranesi by Susanna Clark. I don't do that with books. Yeah. Um, I, I don't. I never have. I once said I was going to read The Lord of the Rings every year, and I did that twice, okay? <laughs> like, I don't do this. But over the last four years, I read Piranesi when it came out. I then listened to the audiobook the next year because it had Chiwetel Ejiofor in it, and I was going to do that. Yeah. I then read it the next year to Julia because we were reading books to each other that mattered a lot. And then this last year, I was in the hospital, and I wanted something to listen to that I was familiar with that also counted me towards my book goal because I was very far behind. And the only possible answer was Piranesi by Susanna Clark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so apparently I'm going to read Piranesi forever. At this point, I feel like when you've read it once a year for four years, you have to read it every year for the rest of your life. So um, I've tried to talk about Piranesi on this podcast before. I have failed. I don't know. Is it still interesting to listen to me bang my head against this particular wall? But I will just note that there are very few books in my experience that are better for listening to when you're in the hospital and you're not sure what's going on. You're not in like immediate danger of dying. It wasn't that kind of project but you're not really sure what's happening, and there's some reason to believe there may be life-changing consequences here. We'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and listening to Piranesi as he struggles with the very terrible things that happened to him, but he manages to always view the world through a, um, I don't know, just particularly beautiful, beatific, actually, in the sense, like, saintly vision yeah. of the world, uh, was very good. Also, Chiwetelegi for is, is beautiful, and I would leave my fiancé for him. <laughs> um... But no, I mean, you know, I, this is not the Susanna Clark podcast, but uh, Piranesi is wonderful, and I love it, and he's, I, I will say, I was just reading, I was going to try to write about this on Substack, but I haven't, Lincoln Michelle, who's an author who I really like, I think, though I've never read any of his books, I keep meaning to, The Body Scout sounds great, I just haven't gotten around to it, but I like his Substack a lot, wrote the other day about how we need more weird little freaks in literature as narrators, Yeah, and he was by the nature of the project, writing a lot about sort of unlikable first-person narrators, which was a, a very good thing for him to be writing about, you know, getting away from the need for your narrator to be likable. Uh, and I, I think that's, I, I endorse every word he says there, but I was also thinking about how Piranesi is absolutely a weird little freak of a narrator. He's a very weird guy, but he's maybe the most likable character in, in literature from the last 10 years. So, you know, you can have a weird little freak whoever yeah. likes. You can do it. He just has to actually be a weird little freak. You gotta give us the last line of the book. Yeah, the last line of the book, which is also the last line of the first chapter, is, of course, the beauty of the house is immeasurable, its kindness infinite, which I have adopted as, like, uh, like a pretty important mantra in my life at this point, which is hokey, but I don't care. I love it. No, I love it. I, I, I have a similar relationship to a, a much more twisted book, <laughs> <laughs> Prime and Miss Jean Brody, but yeah. actually, I won't go into that. I don't know why I like the book so much. It's great. I've read it more than once in the last five years, <laughs> it, too, to be it's clear. True. Yeah, it, is, it is a great book. But um, actually, you know, a book that I kind of... I wish I could forget half to three-fourths of this book, and I wish that the author and the editor had felt the same way before they published it. <laughs> so for years now... So I, I, a couple years ago, I read all of P.D. James, right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I love her. I still love her. She's the queen of crime. Um, the only person who I read currently who kind of, I feel like hits that level of literary and also actually crime interested is Kate Atkinson. I haven't read all of the people, Ruth Rendell, Val McDermott, you know, I'm not like an expert. So, you know, send your letters to Bill. He'll <laughs> translate them. I haven't read any of these people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but no, but so forever, Tana French has been like the literary mystery girl, right? Like everyone who loves 
literary fiction, but also mysteries like Tana French. She's the person to go to. And I will say the, the the few Tana French fans in my life have said that her first book in the woods, into the woods or in the woods, in the woods is not her best. They, they said, you know, the secret place, the follow up book is better. Keep reading the Dublin murder mystery series, whatever. It's good. In the woods is one of the most frustrating books I've read in a long time because you can see the good book like hidden beneath the fat of the bad book that she actually encases it in. It's just so overwritten. And I think actually she probably has a lot of like writerly instincts, bad writerly instincts that I actually also have, which is always, always makes a book harder when like you've worked for years and years and years to kill this thing in yourself. And then you come across an acclaimed book that didn't bother to be like, Hey, is this crappy? <laughs> and like, yeah, this is a, this is a bad instinct that you, a good writer have and that you won't be a good writer if you keep indulging. So I, that was my, probably the most disappointing book is that I read it. It was interesting. There were some riffs in it that were good, but it, it truly, it was just so overwritten, like sentence to sentence plot wise, very overwritten and enough so that like, even though I probably should read more of her, I, I'm not sure I will, to be honest, I might just, just let her go and move on to Ruth Rendell or whoever else, you know, is there anything this year that you think you're going to have to reread? Oh, right. The actual question. A lot of things, actually. Um, I I really want to read read Thomas Brown, which yeah. we read for the yeah. podcast. I would run, run him again. I uh, for a writing project, I'm currently reading um, books by Christian Wyman. His he has like basically kind of two memoirs and then a lot of poetry. And I I you know it's always hard reading for a writing project for me at least because I, t- I take way too many notes. And I feel like sometimes I actually read almost worse because I'm so distracted by like what do I think about this. So I'd love to reread his stuff, to be honest. Um, and But I read a lot of books this year. I tried to do a better job this year reading books that I, I wanted to reread. So actually, my list is kind of full of stuff that, like, like I read Macbeth, and I read The Prime Machine Brody, and um, I reread uh, War and Peace. You know, like, those are all books that, like, maybe not next year with War and Peace, which remains a very long book, by the way. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I want to reread all of those, to be honest, I think. Even um, I read uh, I read a collection of Orwell's essays. I, I love them, and I, I would like to reread those, at least parts of those. So, um, yeah. I think you're going to have to talk more about War and Peace, though. So, we obviously, we did War and Peace for our podcast 2019, I believe. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, 2019. 2019. Uh, so, you know, obviously we've talked about the book before, but you've read the book again in the time since. Uh, and that book obviously is... You know, it's War and Peace. It's a famous, vast novel for a reason. So what was it like reading War and Peace again? First of all, did you read the same translation or did you read a different translation? Um, uh, last time, I actually jumped back and forth. Oh, that's between, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I jumped back and forth between um, the Peviar and Volkonsky, whatever that is, um, the kind of modern Penguin translation, and then an updated mod translation. Um, I read, I read just time, I just read the mod translation. I have, I own like three copies of War and Peace. And I also have it on, you know, Audible. So I, I kind of just stuck with the mod translation. I, it's honestly, you know, to everyone's surprise, it's a pretty good book. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> uh, you know, I would say, I would say, yeah. No, honestly, I do think with Tolstoy, this is true of most books I reread where, like, everything you love about it, you kind of love more deeply the second time. You know, I, I really, I, Anna Karenina might be the better book because I think... He loses his nerve with War and Peace, or he he does the he he gives into his worst instincts more 
in War and Peace with the second half. All the didactic stuff. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind it as much the first time. The second time, it really is like, my guy, you're grinding an axe against like people who 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 at the time did not care what you were saying. <laughs> you know, like we definitely don't care now. Um so but honestly, uh the three main characters, Natasha, Pierre and Andre, I, I I just love them. I love all three of them. Um I think Nikolai Rostov was a mm-hmm. bigger character for me this time. Like I think his presence was more fascinating. Um and I think Tolstoy he did. I mean like I think it was Turgenev or, or one of those, you know, one of those Russian guys, you know, he said if the world could write itself, it would write like Tolstoy. And it, it is, it's hard for me to read Tolstoy's depictions of family or power or like insecurity, all of these micro dynamics that basically make up all of life. I know it's not effortless. There's all kinds of, you know, work about how much he like deleted and threw away and so forth, so on. But there, there is an effortlessness to the final product that I find totally entrancing. Um, and I think if you, you know, if, if you, if you fall into the world at all, it does kind of, it does just take you, take you over. But I, I also, I just, I, you know, especially in this time of, you know, honestly world aggression on, you know, on the Russian front <laughs> literally happening again, it is fascinating to read a book that is so, it is so anti-war um, and it was way more anti-war in the beginning than I realized the first time. Because the first time I read it, it was like, by the end of it, his didacticism is kind of taking over. He has that incredible thing about, like, war is this incredible excuse to murder people. No one cares. It's this incredible excuse to steal. No one cares. It's this whole diatribe he does, which is beautiful. But from the beginning in this one, it was a lot more obvious how much he thinks war is senseless. Um, in, a, in a really powerful way, though, because he, he went through war. He was, you know, in the military. So, I don't know. I, I don't have anything profound, probably, to say, which I've, I've rambled for too long already. But I, I do love War and Peace. And at, at this point, Anna Krenner might be the better book, but it it's probably my, my favorite book besides maybe Muriel Sparks' books. Yeah. Well, I'm kicking Joel off the podcast for not breaking new ground on War and Peace. <laughs> um. <laughs> what, is, what is so funny? One of, one of the essays in Orwell talks about Tolstoy because Tolstoy has this famous track where he um, hates Shakespeare. He writes a whole pamphlet about Shakespeare's dog crap. Don't read him. He's not good. You know, like (laughs) it's this crazy thing. And Orwell actually gives the one kind of like psychological close reading that has totally convinced me. And he does it. He does it. It it works because he does it. um, Because he starts with the text. He basically says Tolstoy, you know, hates Shakespeare because he himself is King Lear. And then it starts oh. with it starts with King Lear and it goes through like the collapse of King Lear from this powerful figure to like a madman on the heath being like, Nature matters, you know? <laughs> and and that's what Tolstoy went through. But it, yeah. it was one of the most convincing like psychological profiles via close reading I've ever read. Um, it's also hysterical because I actually you know, I Tolstoy is so wrong about his critical opinions. Like he's so wrong so often. And yet he's still a great writer. It's really encouraging, you know, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I, I find it very worrying, however, because I think I've never been wrong about a critical opinion. And therefore that makes me worry that I might be a terrible writer. <laughs> I, I kind of have that problem. I feel like I've never been wrong, too, to be honest. Although I think maybe less so now, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I got a couple little things I want to talk about. Uh, I don't have any unifying theory here. They're just books I don't have too much to say about. Yeah. Uh, I read three short books 
by Harry Harrison, The Stainless Steel Rat and The Stainless Steel Rat's Revenge and The Stainless Steel Rat Saves the World. Mm. Uh, these are like minor classics in like mid like 60s and 70s and such sci-fi. Uh, and I don't have too much to say about this. They were a, sort of a fun time when they were being Raygun, Ocean's Eleven, and somewhat less fun when they were being Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, which is, <laughs> I've said this before on the internet if you've heard, but uh, because they're kind of fun as like, here's this sort of spacefaring con artist who's doing his thing, but it's really wild. I've never read a book like this, which can't avoid looking at the reader and saying, boy, women sure be shopping, huh? Every five minutes. <laughs> and like, it's, it's deeply distracting and strange. Um, I, I read them. I don't regret reading them. I'm not going to read any more Harry here. He wrote like 15 of these, I think. Um, what's interesting is there is a modern day, I think 2008 era, uh, Chinese activist who adopted the name the stainless steel rat for some reason. So, so this 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 resonated wow. for some reason. And maybe yeah. the other nine books are better. Uh, and there were parts <laughs> these I really enjoyed. I, I don't want to be too mean, but it really is like the the weirdest. Like you read a lot of sci-fi from this era or anything from this era, and occasionally yeah. you're like, oh, what a weird thing to say about half of the human population. But Harry Harrison does it like twice a chapter. It is it is deeply distracting and strange. So that's one little thing I wanted to say. Actually, real, real quick, yeah, yeah. I, I will add for War and Peace, um, <laughs> his comments about women yeah, yeah. stood out a lot more this time. <laughs> that makes like, sense. I, I didn't miss it the first time. <laughs> but he at one point, he's like, she listened. Not like an educated woman who wanted to have a conversation. <laughs> she listened to him like a real woman who shut up. You know, he doesn't say that. But like, it's really... <laughs> but what's, 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 what makes it crazy with Tolstoy, it's actually, once again, like... He, I mean, Anna Karenina is an incredible psychological portrait of a complicated, interesting human person who is a woman. And that's true of at least most of the female leads in War and Peace. And it's crazy to me that someone could be so reductive when he gets writing as a dead. But like when he goes into novel mode, novelist mode, he cannot help himself. He makes yeah. them real people. But the, the comments did. It was it was worse than I remembered. So to continue on this, because the other person I, I read some of this year was, I read some more Fritz Leiber this year. Uh, specifically, I read his Our Lady of Darkness, which was the book, uh, the short novel he wrote later in his career after his like wife had died. And, and it's about like a, a weird, a weird fiction author whose wife died and who is becoming an alcoholic and like is interested in younger women. And it's like, yeah, so Fritz, this is about you, isn't oh, it? Oh, no. Uh, it's not complicated at all. Yeah. But uh, I've read not anything like all of Fritz Leiber, but at this point, a lot of Fritz Leiber and the big connection, the comparison between like Harry Harrison's Stainless Steel Rat and Fritz Leiber is I think Fritz Leiber also thinks women be shopping. Right. But sort of like what you're talking about with Tolstoy and I'm not saying Leiber's as good as Tolstoy, okay? Because Leiber's better than Tolstoy! No, <laughs> oh that's gosh. that's not true. But Leiber is wonderful and I love him. And I I will say, you know what? I think Leo Tolstoy is a better writer than Fritz Leiber. I also think that Fritz Leiber could have written a story about Russians in 1850 and I don't think Leo Tolstoy could have written a sword and sorcery adventure. <laughs> I'm going to say that. I don't think Fritz Leiber's version of War and Peace would be as good as Leo Tolstoy's version of War and Peace. I am convinced that Fritz Leiber's version of Fafford and the Grey Mauser is better than Leo Tolstoy's version of Fafford and the Grey Mauser. That's because Tolstoy would stop and be like, now look, all property is not theft, and I have 18 points Y. But Leiber does that too, just not obviously it is long. Anyway, this is a very silly connection that I'm forcing a little too hard. But but, uh, but it's the same sort of point, though, where like Leiber will occasionally say, particularly in another book I read earlier, um, Conjure Wife, which is a very strange book, and I think I talked about this a bit last year or a year before, like Conjure Wife's partly about how like women, they sure are mysterious magicians who ensorcel us men, aren't they? And that's not incorrect to say that's partly what the book is about, but also whenever he gets too close to the female character, he can't 
help himself, but from turning her into an actual person. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. Like he, yes. he's still, and it's, I'm not saying no, it's, the book has, is immune yeah. to critique. I don't mean that, but there's, there's, there's still enough there. And Our Lady of Darkness is a weird book because it's partly about, like I said, this weird alcoholic writer who's got like a much younger girlfriend, but the much younger girlfriend definitely does stuff that we'd sort of roll our eyes about and be like, oh, that's very tropey, we'd say, before being put out to pasture because we don't, our, <laughs> don't allow ourselves to talk like that in this podcast. But that's like, right. she's actually much more interesting than that. She does, still does some of the other stuff that's kind of boring, but she is as a whole more interesting than that. Also, Our Lady of Darkness uh, got a jump scare out of me, which uh, doesn't happen too often. Yeah. And I won't spoil it, but there's a moment when a thing happened in the book and I started because it was surprising <laughs> and frightening and it stuck with me. So, way to go, Fritz. You're still surprising me. Seriously. And you're better than Leo Tolstoy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. This is the last in-person podcast. <laughs> As I have Bill in a you know a headlock, giving him a nuggie right now. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, I do. I have a few books before we get to Gene Wolfe, and I actually I have a Gene Wolfe transition that I want to do as well. But, I'm excited to hear about that. Um, but before we do, I want to do. I want to ask you about a few little books, just so I don't forget. The first one is, I'm sure it was inspired by Connie Willis. You yes. read Jerome K. Jerome's. Uh, we'll, we'll call it a duology. Yeah. <laughs> three Men on a Boat, Three Men on a Brummel. I've only read Three Men on a Boat, actually. I own both of them, but I only read the first one. So the second one is definitely, uh, it had been 20 years and he wanted more money. Like, it's not complicated. Uh, he and his buddies go on a, uh, let me back up. Jerome came Jerome, uh, late 19th century English author. He wrote Three Men in a Boat to Say Nothing of the Dog, which would then inspire both Robert Heinlein and in, in, uh, particularly Half Space Suit Will Travel, which is where Connie Willis learns about it, and then she uses it as the subtitle, or as the, as the title, for her wonderful book To Say Nothing of the Dog, and actually has basically a, a cameo by Jerome K. Jerome yeah. in the book. Um, to Say Nothing of the Dog is a loosely non-fictional account. It's not. It's a fictional account inspired by a real trip he and some buddies took uh, down the Thames. Uh, for instance, the dog... Is not did not exist. There was actually no dog, even though the dog is a major part of the book. Then 20, 30 years later, he wrote a sequel to it where he and those same buddies take a bicycle tour up and down Germany. Um, they're very fun. They're just delightful for the entire time. Yeah. They're kind of popcorn, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to... They totally are. The first book is kind of fun because Jerome K. Jerome's character will go off on these long tangents where he's kind of thinking about life and what it means to like look at the British countryside but he, he always like undercuts himself by making a joke halfway through about how he's the one staring off into the sunset being silly and like the boat is sinking you know what I right. mean but th there is there is some more interesting thinking going on in that book as well but it is still mostly comedic that said I enjoyed them both a lot the first one is definitely better uh but they're both very fun but yeah I definitely picked them up because of Connie Willis's book although actually I had read the Robert A. Heinlein book I think it's Had Space It Will Travel it might be Rocket Ship Galileo whichever one it is where uh, he references Jerome K. Jerome a bunch, and that's why Connie Willis does. I had read that before, uh, like when I was like 12. The other one I wanted to make sure we got on the podcast was uh, one of my favorite August summer books. There's, I think there's a great um, genre out there for like late summer. It's always kind of nostalgic. It's a very hard sentiment to pull off, sort of like nostalgia that's not treacly bullcrap. I read one this, this year, um, A Country of Pointed Furs by Sarah Orne Jewett. You read one of my favorites, A Month in the Country by J.L. Carr. What, I, did you enjoy it? I mean, I, I, we haven't talked about it much. Did you yeah. like it? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I don't... So, A Month in the Country, there's a lot There's a lot going on just beneath the surface, and I am not, I think, properly equipped to do it justice. So, I don't know as I'm going to do that right now. But I will say... Uh, so, Joel recommended the book to me. Um, I was buying uh, the Thomas Brown book we read uh, through the NYRB, and I looked at the NYRB, and they were having a sale. 
And so I said, what else should I get? And Joel recommended four books, and I bought those four books. And then I also bought a collection of short fiction by Saki, which we might talk about later. <laughs> yeah, Saki's wild. So. Saki's wild, dude. Uh, it's very funny. But anyway, um, Month in the Country was one of them, and I read it you know, in one afternoon yeah. a couple months ago. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, beautiful little book in the sense that it's only 180 pages long. It's not really a little book in terms of how you feel when you're done. Because it is very much, you know, this guy goes, spends a month, I think more than a month, it doesn't yeah. feel like it can all happen in a month, but he spends a month or two in the country restoring this um, medieval painting or fresco or whatever the proper term is on a church and having little interactions with the local priest and the local priest's wife and like his buddy who's also doing a weird little project out in the church. He's, <laughs> he's digging something up um, that probably isn't there, maybe is there, who knows, you know, but also got some patron to pay for. And the character, I can't remember the character's name. Um I can't either, actually. Anyway, the, the the narrator has come back from World War One and is, like, in the middle of this horrible, like, got left by his wife. And it's just really a bunch of serious, terrible, traumatic things. Uh, and is now just doing this weird project in the woods for a month or two. And having weird little adventures is even too strong. Like, nothing, like, happens. You know what I mean? Like, right. just, just little sort of summer adventures with people, uh, which are all slightly awkward, but everything's fine. And then he leaves, right? And it's, it's a really beautiful little book, um, precisely because it's, I think, Joel, you just said, like, it, it captures a very particular feeling of that kind of late summer thing. Exactly. Like, everything's sort of freighted with significance, but nothing yeah. quite adds up to anything. And I, I will also say, as someone who did once, in the process of getting divorced, run off into the woods and do a weird project for a few weeks, it felt very accurate. Uh, that is a true <laughs> thing that I did. I, it was not quite as interesting as what he gets up to. But, uh, yeah, you know, you know, the time when I was off in the cabin trying to write something and I would meet somebody at the bar the one time I went there, it felt like everything really meant something. And then I'd go home and be like, no, you just talked to a dude for a while. Um, the book gets that feeling exactly right. It's also, it's just very, very beautiful. Uh, really, really yeah. beautiful book. There's a movie with uh, Colin Firth and Kenneth Branagh or something like that, uh, which I'll probably watch at some point. But there's a lot going on in the book. I'm doing it short shrift right now. But no, it's no, really I, beautiful and it's absolutely worth reading. I did just want to, I, I also, it, it's a good pairing with, I didn't, I didn't read, them, read them both this year. I meant to. But I read um, a, The Country of Pointed Furs by Sarah Orne Jewett, which is, you know, it takes place on the coast of Maine. Similar thing. She's there in the summer. The summer ends. All these sailors and sailors' wives and widows tell her stories. Um, it's it's a beautiful book. And she was responsible for um, for capturing a certain, basically, dialect, a certain way of speaking on the Maine coasts. That actually, they, um, uh, the light, uh, the lighthouse, that crazy. Oh yeah, the uh, Eggers movie. Yeah. yeah, the Eggers movie. He uses her like they, they get that from Sarah Orne Jewett. Makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. She recorded it so faithfully. Anyway, there's actually what's really funny about that book though um, is that one of the sea captains she talks to talks about going basically to like the northern part of the world and finding some kind of lost civilization of either highly advanced. Uh, unknown people and or aliens it's like in this middle of middle of this like like realism like you know realism 101 beautiful main dialect story he starts talking about this absolute sci-fi trope of like and then we came across these people who could bend light and you're like what they could do what <laughs> what are we talking about right now um but also those i feel like those two would be like a perfect like august um pairing to be honest that makes sense to me absolutely but Okay, so you you ready for the Gene Wolfe transition? Let's go. Okay, so I'll I'll, I'll give you time by telling you about another book I read, and a fan and a, a a theory I have, a conspiracy I have. So I have read to my daughter many times in the last few years a book called Me Oh My Son, um, by Astrid Lindgren, who's famous for Pippi Longstocking. Um, it's a book she wrote after 
I think her husband died. Someone close to her died. It's a book about grief. Um, this little boy who's, you know, adopted goes missing and he's the narrator and he goes missing because he goes to a faraway land. He goes to fairyland and his father's the king. There's a lot of like Christian kind of tropes, even though she wasn't Christian. But what's really interesting is it's this beautiful story about um, a child being taken to fairy by, you know, fairies of some kind. And um, it remind I, I have a lot more evidence that I've written down somewhere that I won't go through now. <laughs> there is, I think, textual evidence that I think Gene Wolfe read this. Mm. I think that, so the, the part of the narration is this kid writing letters back to Ben. No kidding. His okay. best friend. All right, all right. Like, it's a brother he was raised with, kind of. So there's all kinds of, like, little ticks that reminded me of um, Wizard Knight by Gene Wolfe, um, the great book that Bill and I have read and talked about a lot. And um, I wanted to bring that up as a transition to Gene Wolfe, but also actually because Me and My Son is, it is one of the most beautiful books I've read to my kids and there's a scene at the end of it where they defeat the bad guy. And it's like, um, you know, he hates the world, but he also hates himself. And it's a line that, like, I always read and start crying where I'm like, I'm the evil father. <laughs> I have all these rules. <laughs> and it's because I hate myself. <laughs> but um, but I think there's textual evidence that you will someday see on my stub stack <laughs> that Gene Wolfe read this book and it, it totally influenced him, I think. But, which is all of a very long way to get to the fact that Bill... You have read Gene Wolfe's, um, everyone calls it his masterpiece, but you've read the Book of the New Sun. I have. How was it in five words? <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just I mean, kidding. yeah, no, it's, it rocks, dude. Like, it's, uh, okay, so the Book of the New Sun, uh, if you don't know what it is, uh, get out. No, uh, it's... <laughs> Wrong podcast. <laughs> what are you doing here? What are you doing here? <laughs> so we've talked about Gene Wolfe in the podcast a lot for the last year and a half, because we both read The Wizard Knight, and Joel has read The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which uh, Joel really liked. I love it. I've read his short stories as well. Yeah, Yeah. lots of stuff. Um, But yeah, I think the consensus is that the Book of the New Sun is his masterpiece. The Book of the New Sun is four books, each about 200 pages long. And then there's a fifth book, which was a coda he wrote some years later that is controversial. Some people really like it. Some people really hate it. Ursula K. Le Guin liked it. Some people really hate it. She's probably right. She's probably right. (laughs) But but the Book of the New Sun, uh, again, four, four, four books first. Uh, the Shadow of the Torturer, The Claw of the Conciliator, The Sword of the Lictor, and The Citadel of the Autark. And then the fifth book, The Earth of the New Sun. Uh, roughly like 1979 through, I want to say like 89, when you include the coda. But the first four within like a year of each other. Um, he then would write late a couple of other series, or... Call it, call, yeah, this is like a series of books, but yeah. I mean, the same way The Lord of the Rings is, right? Like, no, right. it's not. It's one book. Um, or 1.2 books or whatever, right? Uh, in the same way, but he would write two other things like that, the Book of the Short Song and the Book of the Long Song that are technically in the same universe, but as I understand it, in very different focuses. Um, the Book of the New Sun is, Gretchen Felker Martin calls it Fantasies Ulysses. Um, I have not read Ulysses, so I don't know, but that makes <laughs> sense to me. Uh, in talking to friend of the podcast, Phil Christman, uh, I think we've agreed that that and Samuel R. Delaney's Neverion, which I read the first of and mm-hmm. also rocks. Uh, it's like somebody gave Proust a sword. Um, the Book of the New Sun is probably a better book than The Wizard Knight. I will say I like The Wizard Knight better. The Wizard Knight was written for Bill in a way that The Book yeah. of the New Sun wasn't. But The Book of the New Sun is a towering achievement, and um, it's impossible to pretend that you fully understand it, I think, unless you've studied <laughs> a lot more than I have. But I will say, in addition to reading it, I also listened to uh, the Shelved by Genre podcast, which was reading through it. They just finished recently. I'm like one episode behind. 
shelved by genre being uh, the Range Touch Podcast Network, which is Cameron Kunzelman and Michael Lutz. And then they had Austin Walker on as a uh, guest for this this season. Um, uh, it's not clear to me if he'll be back for future seasons of this podcast or not. And they read through the whole book and they talked, they did, uh, you know, like an episode for every seven or eight chapters or so. So it was a pretty, pretty in-depth read of it yeah. from some writers and thinkers that I have paid attention to for a long time. Um, sometimes I think they're hopelessly wrong, but I, I find them interesting <laughs> thinkers for sure. Um, Gene Wolfe, of course, is the world's most Catholic man. And so particularly as you get to the end of the series, like these 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 people I'm talking about are are, are not particularly interested right. in that part. And so there were moments when they were like, this happened and I didn't like it. And I was shaking my phone. Like, <laughs> I'm not Catholic, but I am Christian. You know, so anyway, yeah. I, anyway um, briefly, the Book of the New Sun is about Severian, who is an apprentice in the Torturer's Guild, or more accurately, the Order of the Seekers After Truth and Penitence who is kicked out of the guild because he shows mercy to a client, that is, someone he's supposed to torture, and then goes on an adventure in one wild and crazy summer where he uh, ultimately ends up on the throne. And that's not a spoiler. He tells you that very From the quickly. Beginning, that, yeah. I mean, not literally chapter one, I think, but very early, that it's about how he backed into the throne. Um, it is set in a world which is, at first appears to be sort of a sword and sorcery world, but pretty quickly you realize it's actually set in the very, very, very far future. Yeah. It's connected to like the Dying Earth subgenre of works uh, popularized most famously by like Jack Vance. It's called Dying Earth because that's what the Jack Vance stories were called, yeah. was Dying Earth. Um, and it's... By the end of the book, there's time travel, there's all kinds of references to all kinds of wild and crazy things. There are so many words you're going to have to look up, all of which are real words. Uh, Gene Wolfe only makes up like two or three words in this, but I read it with a dictionary and a handy and was glad I did. Um, it's not just a horse, it's a merry chip, which is a reference to a very particular kind of old prehistoric horse. Uh, most of the animals you meet are named after actual existing like prehistoric, uh, you know, like pre-Pleistocene <laughs> mammals that actually existed that have been brought back in some fashion or as he will tell the reader yeah. because it's like a little four or five page appendix at the end of every book where somebody named gw tells the reader about oh really the book that he found after it fell in front of him and it's in the future and he's translated language from the future and he can't, he the, can't help himself wild man it's wild <laughs> he can't help himself and he'll say stuff like i have used the word metal to refer to a lot of things that appear to have functioned as sort of like metal but also clearly weren't actually metal so oh it's a sort of book gosh. where like he meets a dog at one point, and if you're paying any attention at all, you realize this dog doesn't look like any dog I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> but that's the way that this GW intertextual yeah. person chose to translate it. You can spend the rest of your life digging, pick, picking this book to pieces. Uh, I didn't do that. I read it once so far. And I was certainly trying to pay attention, right. but I have done the, the one, like, uh, there's the quote that Joel has quoted before on this podcast that you can't read Wolf, Gene Wolf, you can only reread Gene Wolf. Yeah. I have not done that yet. I have right. listened to a deep dive podcast about it. Um... It's an incredibly beautiful, uh, deeply complicated book because Severian claims that he has perfect memory and he can remember everything that's ever happened to him with absolute perfect recall. Right. But for various reasons, his mind doesn't work right by the end of the book, by the time he's writing it. And so you're not sure if sometimes something happens and he's lying to you or if it's because he doesn't remember properly actually or if because something has maybe changed. Hmm. Like maybe something has changed between when the event actually happened and when he's telling you about it later. Um. You can read the book 15 to 100 different ways. Uh, you can read the book as being about how, like, 
God is in control of everything and it's okay. You can also read the book is about how everything is meaningless and terrible. Um, <laughs> That's an accurate <laughs> depiction of the Catholic faith. Yeah. <laughs> um, the book is incredibly beautiful. It's also got some weirdly problematic stuff in it for sure, uh, which will oscillate between, does Gene Wolfe think this is maybe true about people? Or like, no, Severian thinks this and Gene right. Wolfe doesn't actually like this. He's just trusting you to read it. It's very, very complicated. Hmm. Um it also, and this is my contribution to Gene Wolfe's studies on the Book of the New Sun, relates to a piece I wrote for my Substack, which if you're listening to this, you probably read. The thing that gets forgotten about, about the Book of the New Sun, they always talk about how incredibly complicated it is and how beautiful it is, and all of that is very true. The thing that I think gets neglected is how incredibly rad it is. Like, how much the book just rocks, dude. Like, there's just stuff that happens in this book that absolutely would be on the cover of a metal album, and I think we don't talk enough about that. And that's my contribution to Gene Wolfe studies, is while we're talking about all the incredibly deep-cut references to forgotten Catholic saints and to Marcel Proust, we need to also remember that there's a bit where Severian is rescued by Anpeels that are women, or they're not women, but they look like women, naked babes with rainbow wings, and they're each wielding a pistol in each hand. And, like, it's important <laughs> to remember that that happens alongside some of the really high-level stuff in this book. It's, it is actually more fun to read than it sounds. Like, it sounds like it's a terrible homework assignment, and it's actually not, uh... You can spend as much homework on it as you'd like. Right. But it is it is really a, a really good time to read. It's fun. It's funny in a lot of places. Um, I, I think I do still prefer The Wizard Knight for my own sake, but The Book of the New Sun is life-changing text. The Earth of the New Sun, the Coda, I don't think it's as good as the others. It does sort of tie up some loose ends, some major loose ends that you're sort of surprised were left loose at the end of the, hmm. the original quartet in ways that are... Interesting. Some people have suggested that he wrote it to just sort of make clear all the things that you could already sort of deduce from the original Book of the New Sun. I think that's partly true, but I also think it's a slightly different project. Um, and I understand why he elected to write it, not just because his publisher wanted him to, although that did happen. Oh. Um, but I, I agree that it should be talked about separately, I think, for sure. Whether you like it or not, it is a it is not a fifth book in the Book of the New Sun. There is the Book of the New Sun, and then right. there is this other thing. And I think that's correct. Uh, I will say I liked it, but not as much as the Book of the New Sun. It's I, I your Substack. I, I haven't read the Book of the New Sun. I, I actually well, I read the first like seventy pages a couple years ago, and then I was like, I need time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I have to have enough time in my life to just read this straight through. But um, I, I've read um his collection of short stories. You know, um the uh, the, uh the Island of Doctor Death and other stories and other and stories. Other stories. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. And honestly, it has a couple of my favorite short stories that I've probably read ever. Um, partly because he really does, he really does, um, it, it, honestly, it's, it's like the other great Catholic writer um, of the 20th century, Cormac McCarthy, who um, is this lyrical master. And uh, Brian Phillips and his obituary for Cormac McCarthy does a great job talking about this lyric master who was also like, by the way, like not interested in writing a lot. Like he would go, you know, hang out with scientists and whatever, but he, like Gene Wolfe, he chose these kind of boyhood genres, right? These, these Westerns, these violent Western stories. Um, that was kind of like the genre for his incredible masterpieces of, you know, philosophical violence or whatever. And I, I, but I, there's something that it, like, it matters that they chose that. You know, I mean, it really does matter that like Gene Wolfe cares about it being rad. And some of my favorite stories, like there's one about post-apocalyptic America, 
whereas you know people from um the middle east who are in that that's not the center of the world they come to america and do like treasure and monster hunting and it's so fascinating for all the reversals and all of the intelligent like philosophy he's doing but also like there's some really incredible monster hunting you know like like it's really it's good good monsters good hunting you know it's all it all makes sense and so i i do think you can't lose that element of gene wolf otherwise you do start to lose because it's the combination that makes it special like it's not just that it's ulysses it really is that it's ulysses with swords that is an incredible combination that i think um that i'm i'm happy exists i guess yeah yeah i don't know i uh I, at this point, I have read the two Gene Wolfe things. Uh, I'm going to read more, but I'm going to try to... He wrote a lot, actually, for somebody who was writing work this complicated. He, he, he wrote, wrote a ton. so much. <laughs> and I don't think all of it is at this level, but, like, no. I don't think any of it's easy. Uh, except maybe his first book that even he sort of basically He disowned. disowned. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to... I think I'm going to read one sort of Gene Wolfe project a year, probably forever. Uh, so The Fifth Head of Cerberus is probably next for me. Partly because I bought a Best of Gene Wolfe collection of short stories, and it includes the first novella of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Yeah, it, Which annoys I the heck out of me, because there's two other novellas. And I know that he published them separately, but also, no, no. come on. You, you, you <laughs> do have to read them together. I <laughs> yeah. really, that, I, I saw the collection. It looks like a good collection, but that, that annoyed me as well, actually. So I'll probably read The Fifth Head of Cerberus next. But uh, I would say Soldier in the Mist, or whatever it is, which is about... Uh, I think he's a Roman soldier who's walking around the world. I except think so. he has he has the memento disease. He has enterograde amnesia, yeah. which means he can't keep track of anything that happens to him after like ten years ago. And it's like four or five books about this dude, and it sounds really cool. Uh, of course, I'll read the book of the long son and the book of the short son. I think Peace is the one that Neil Gaiman said that he had to read like five times because the first time it was just sort of a an interesting little story, and the second right. time he realized it was actually a horror novel. Uh, so there's a lot of Gene Wolfe I'm going to have to read, but uh, I'm going to try not to overdo it because I think it would be easy to overdose on Gene Wolfe, and I don't want to do that. Um, the, the other book I read that I have to talk about in connection with it, because it's the other book I read where somebody gave Priest a sword, is uh, Never Yon uh, by Samuel R. Delaney, except the first book's not called Never Yon. Tales of Never Yon is the first one, sorry. And then it's Never Yana, and then Return to Never Yana, and then Flight from... Uh, something like that. <laughs> so it's it's four books. Um, and Samuel R. Delaney, it's, it's written the same year, I think, as the first book of the new sword. Maybe like a year different. Uh, and it's much more explicitly sword and sorcery. Yeah. It's, I mean, the, the book of the new son has sword and sorcery in it. But this is much more in conversation with Liber, Howard, Moorcock. And it's the sort of book which... The first one in particular is a collection of short stories set in this... It's probably the real world, although there are dragons, right? So it's a little different. Uh, but because it's Samuel R. Delaney, he does this thing. I can't imagine doing this. He will he will write a short story, which is about, like, a woman telling a story about the time she got attacked by a sea monster. And he will open it with a paragraph-long quote from Kristeva. That's, yeah. That's... And, like, I don't think you can do that unless you are Chip Delaney. I think yeah. if anyone else, possibly including Gene Wolfe, did that, I would just throw the book in the garbage. Yep. You know? Yeah. <laughs> No, that's gutsy. But with Chip Delaney, I believe it. I'm like, yeah, I don't... I believe that this is the right thing to do here. I don't know if I know why. I haven't read any Kristeva other than this one paragraph. But, you know, like, here's something from Susan Sontag. And also, here's a story about a barbarian and another barbarian... Or a barbarian and a soldier who are both running away from being slaves, but are also involved in an incredibly complicated sadomasochistic sexual relationship where they switch off who's wearing the collar, but they sure as heck can't get off unless someone's wearing the collar. Also, they are killing the people who used to have them be enslaved, and they're killing them with swords and some pretty good action sequences. It's wild. That's um, like our year in Oxford. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> uh, it's, it's crazy. 
it's wild. I haven't finished the whole series, so I, I'm not ready to talk about it yet. Uh, but I, it was good that I read part of it at the same time as The Book of the New Sun, and it's yeah. good I didn't read all of it the same year as The Book of the New Sun, because they have in some ways similar projects, but they're very... they're wild. Uh, also, to, you, you want to talk about how there's no shorter... like, there's an infinite amount of fractal possibility in the world of literature, because the same year two different people decided to give Proust a sword, and they did it in very different ways, because Gene Wolfe is the world's most Catholic man, and Chip Delaney was not. <laughs> we'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> Chip Delaney's not dead yet. He is, but he is not. Unless there's been a late hour conversion I'm not aware of. Not particularly Catholic. Um, both wild, wild books, though. Very much recommend reading them if any of that sounds interesting to you. And if it doesn't, don't. Just don't yeah. do it. You won't have a good time. Well, the, the good news is, I mean, I will say that's that's the beauty of Gene Wolfe, though, is that you really can read his short stories and get kind of the essence of what makes him great. You might not get the greatest he's done, I think, but I think he actually is one of those writers who is as good in short form, at times at least, as he is long form. Um, I, I don't have a ton of other books to go through on my own list. Um, I could ask you a few more about... Like, you know, for example, um, you, you reread Annihilation. I did. Is is it still okay? It's still okay. Yeah. Great. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 so I had this, okay, <laughs> I had this thing with Vandermeer where I just, I want to like him more than I do. Yeah. Right? I, I really want to be like, I, I, I don't know, charmed by him the way that everyone else seems to be. But I, I, I just, I, there, there's a writing thing going on that I, I can never quite put my finger on. And it does have to do with how he, how he kind of like, he, he's, he kind of cheats, I think. I think he kind of cheats with his whole like, you know, dispersal of information. He, he tries to make things obscure, mysterious, that he, he tries to do it through an absence of description that should always be done through actual failed description. But I also think there's just, I don't know, like I just, he's never clicked for me. I, I find him a very frustrating writer. So I, I read Annihilation again this year. Well, I listened to it, I should say. I listened to the audiobook, and I did not particularly care for the narrator. I will say that. Um, I listened to it because I was driving, and I wanted something vaguely familiar. Yeah. And I had just rewatched the movie, uh, and I had rewatched the movie with some chemical assistance, we'll say. And so I elected <laughs> to. <laughs> I elected to read the book again because I was curious. Yeah. And because when I first read the trilogy, um, it was a really weird time in my life, and I ended up walking away being like, I don't know how good these books were, but they kind of stuck with me, and I wanted to revisit them. Totally. Um, Annihilation itself, so not as part of the trilogy, I think is definitely good and worth reading, but it is frustrating in ways that I totally agree with Joel about. It's also frustrating because he does a lot the trick of, like, the biologist, the main character, encounters the something weird, and right. then they spend a whole chapter then after that. There's no chapters in the book, but a whole section after that with her, like, flashing back to, like, wandering around as a research biologist in the tide pools and wherever the heck. And he does that about five too many times. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember that, actually. Um, and that said, I, 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 I find him a very frustrating author uh, in general, and I find this trilogy very frustrating, but I also can't get away from it. There's something about how I can articulate... Like, every time Joel criticizes this book, I agree with at least 90% of everything he says, right? <laughs> and yet... There's something about where lies the strangling fruit, you know, I know, that, that no, I can't get I away know, from it. Fair. And I, I can't, I will say this is, uh, to, to vamp off something else, this is something I feel about a lot, a lot of weird fiction. 
I've read a lot of weird fiction. Some of it I love to death. I like a lot of it. I find all of it fascinating, even when I find it frustrating. Yeah. And I read a collection of Arthur Machen's short stories this year, and actually his short novel, The Three Imposters, which is just a collection of short stories. It's really weird. Um, and Arthur Machen is interesting because he predates and postdates Lovecraft, because Lovecraft only lived for 40-something years. 47 years, yeah. Uh, and Machen was born before Lovecraft and lived after Lovecraft, yeah. right? So Lovecraft was reading Arthur Machen uh, before he starts doing any of his stuff, and then... Mm. Machen mostly wasn't writing horror at this point, but Machen was still... Machen, Machen, I don't know. Ma- Welsh. So, <laughs> uh, Machen had at least an opportunity to read Lovecraft. I don't know if he did or not. Yeah. And he's a really interesting author because he'll have these moments that like totally work. Stephen King once said that The Great God Pan is the greatest horror story in the English language, which is not correct. But I sort of get why you feel that way because The Great God Pan doesn't quite work. Yeah. But there's, there's something under the surface that you're like maybe i'm glad it doesn't quite work because maybe this would bother me more than anything that does and and that's why matching feels all the way right like um he'll have some of these really silly stories which is like he's really interested in the idea of like actual like fairies or like an ancient like primitive race still living in the hills in wales like all these guys were really fascinated about this right and so he'll be like well i I was studying it and then i wandered off into the hills in wales and i got hacked to death by axes and i wrote this down and you (laughs) found it and that's really weird but there's this thing he does sometimes, like The White People is one of his other famous short stories, and it's also about fairies and whales, but it it really works anyway. Like it's hmm. and a couple other he wrote four or five little like two page short stories that are just basically poems, because it's like here's just like somebody encounters something weird and who knows what it means. And it works in a way that like Lovecraft could never do that. Um and so I find a lot of this 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 great weird fiction, both in the the, the heyday, like the nineteen thirties and such, and later, where a lot of it doesn't quite work for me, but I cannot get away from it, and yeah. it sinks into my yeah. brain anyway. And that's how I feel about Vandermeer, because, like, Vandermeer annoys me all the time. And yet I might get the lines from the tower tattooed on my arm. Like, honestly, yeah, you know no, what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, I, I will say, I, he he lost me. I, Annihilation, I actually remember being... I mean, it did it did capture me, and kind of in the way you're talking about. There was a way in which it captured me. The, um, the bureaucracy is hyperobject second novel lost me to be i will honest. say i'm re-listening i'm listening to that one right now and i the first time i read the book authority this is the second one yeah. where rather than being about the magical land in florida uh it's about the bureaucracy that investigates it which is a premise that i i'm interested in but same the first time i read the book i was like this is a little weird but i'm okay with it and listening to it now i am falling asleep the whole time so yeah okay <laughs> all right well sorry jeff sorry for sorry, always jeff. pointing out that i wish you were more than you are you're a great writer so forth so on um, are there any other books that you feel like we have to talk about? Or do you want to kind of do a preview of what you're excited to read this year? We'll do that no matter what, but... Um, I think I just want to talk very briefly about the collection of Saki short stories I read. The Unrest Cure and Other Stories. Saki, S-A-K-I, was the pen name of yeah, Hector Hector Monroe, H.H. Monroe. Um, also that same time period, 1870-1916, uh, before he died in World War One, getting shot... Uh, weird british humorist but he also wrote some sort of like i first encountered him in a vandermeer weird fiction collection for oh. his short story oh uh, shredney vashtar yes uh which rocks shredney vashtar is great it's about six pages long and it's phenomenal and so i picked this up when i was buying the nyrb books sort of expecting there to be a little more sort of that and there's really not it's mostly just little <laughs> satires about how dumb the victorians and early edwardians were they're very funny to be clear uh i really enjoyed every second okay. of them Almost none of them have anything supernatural or weird fiction in them. Uh, there's a few, maybe a little. But um, he was a blast. I don't know. He's sort of like Jan- Jerome K. Jerome. He's 
I think there's more going on there and that there's a more pointed satire going on. But, yeah. like, in the same sort of, like, you can just read it and laugh and chuckle it and put it down and not think about it again. But I still really enjoyed it. And that said, do one thing for me, Shredney Vashtar. That sticks in my mind all the time, too. That's a great little four or five, six-page short story about a weird little boy who's being raised by a horrible aunt and who raises a polecat in a garage. And uh, then his aunt finds the polecat. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> 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 that's great wow what a what a teaser bill it's really good it, you can find i'm sure it's not in the public domain anymore it's yeah. it's uh i really liked it uh so anyway also the, the collection i had also had illustrations by edward gory that's uh, that's a plus which was also yeah. good <laughs> did you know the only the only children's book that muriel spark wrote which i don't remember the name of edward gory illustrated I didn't know that, but I completely believe it. Yeah. I've actually, so NYRB has like a, send us titles that we should republish. I've sent this to them, I think, three times. <laughs> Please do this one. Like, yeah. This is this is your thing. You well, know they've done mean? a lot of gory. I mean, they've uh, republished. They, they, they love gory. The gory collection of uh, the, they did both some of his work, and then they also did, he assembled a collection of short stories um, that was all like the guys I'm talking about, like M.R. James and those. I, yeah. Uh, and he illustrated all of them. And we, I have that because Julia had picked it up at some point. So, yes, they absolutely they, could do that. They love it. Man. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah. Anyway, just, you know, just plug in that. But, well, I think I think that's probably it for me on this year. I do just, as a quick peek into, you know, it's January of the new year. But what are you already kind of, you know, without being, I don't know, I don't ever want to be too artificial here. But I do think we, we, we both usually have goals and things we want to read. What are you looking forward to, like, hopefully getting to this year? Yeah, so I've got a couple different things. Um, I I did, the one book I've read so far this year is, I did read The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And I don't know if I'm going to try to do a complete Toni Morrison run this year, but I'm going to read more. Because I had read Beloved, which of course is incredible. And I read about yeah. half of Song of Solomon when I was like 15, and that doesn't count. Uh, so I'm going to read at least more Toni Morrison. There's only like 12 of them, so I may just do all of them. But certainly at least more. I like The Bluest Eye. It's, uh, you know, definitely a first novel. It's again, one million times better than anything I've ever written. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But, no, you know, I can good. see how it's not... You know, it's not beloved, perfectly mature to Toni Morrison, but there's still some really good stuff in it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm gonna try to do both some more literary stuff as well as really dig into some of the modern fantasy. A book I read last year was Senlin Ascends by Josiah Bancroft, which I just, just catnip. I just liked every second of it. It's just really wonderful fantasy stuff. Um, I'm not gonna talk about much more than that, but I'm gonna get the rest of that. I'm reading some Jim Butcher right now. You know, the Codex Alera, which he wrote the Dresden Files. That's what he's right. famous for. Yeah. Codex Alera is uh, ancient Roman Pokemon. That was the premise. Uh, I'm about half of the first <laughs> book right now, and it's fun. I'm not saying it's uh, blowing my mind, but it's a good time. It's so a great premise. I want to try to read more of those kinds of things. Uh, in addition to, I think I think it's kind of where I want to try to stay away. I'll read, you know, Fifth Head of Cerberus. I think. Yeah. But other than that, I think I'm going to try to read like literary fiction and trash. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see how I do. <laughs> <laughs> I need some more. I, that's actually one goal that I have is I, I would like to have more. It, it, honestly, if not straight up trash, at the very least, some more P.D. James level. Yeah. Just like I'm enjoying this, like kind of like it's not mindless, but it is. I can do it kind of mindlessly. I, I am looking forward to having more of that this year, if possible. Um, I do think I'm, right now I'm in the middle. Of, I, think I, I think I said this. I'm in the middle of reading a bunch of um poetry and prose by christian wyman who's this very serious and intense personality who has been living with cancer for 20 years that should have killed him like four times and he's one of america's foremost poets and also kind of has this like um in, you know intense background of escaping christianity and his family and also coming back to a kind of christianity and 
it's a very you know he's honestly he's very funny too i think like if you met him in person he's probably like he probably is like a weird introvert but he also i think he'd just be like a nice guy to have a beer with and watch football but i i think in, in writing at least he's very serious in a way that um is different than but reminds me of Marilyn robinson mm. who i also read a collection of hers collection of her essays this last year um i i'd like to um to my to my shame actually i have not read all four of her gilead books i've only read the first one yeah yeah i i love gilead great book um and i i'd like to i love housekeeping also great book i actually haven't read the other ones for some reason I'd like to get to those, but I also, I feel like, um, you know, you, at some point you have to accept who you are and who you aren't as a, as a reader. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, I both she and uh, she and Wyman, Christian Wyman and Marilyn Robinson, they are they are both like such serious kind of intellectuals in a way that just doesn't feel possible in my life right now. Um, like they both, you know, have deeply invested in reading um theology and certain philosophy and you can tell like there's a narrowness to their interests like marilyn robinson is in some ways one of the foremost thinkers about jonathan edwards of all people and you know she's kind of like in some ways she's like the face of protestant liberal christianity in america but jonathan edwards not usually (laughs) who you'd associate with that but and, and and wyman's similar i mean he also quotes jonathan edwards and other other you know folks from across the spectrum of, of christian thinkers um and, and beyond i mean wyman especially is very interested in i think buddhism if not explicitly then certainly it comes across implicitly all i to say is i don't know how to make time for this in my life but i i do feel kind of challenged by both of them to to try and tackle some stuff that i've put off for a long time and i i, I hate i don't know there's no good way to talk about a serious book because either you, you make it sound like homework or you make you know you make it sound like vegetables or you make it sound like self-improvements but i do think that there is an intensity to life that that reading certain kinds of work can um it, it can kind of help you understand it more there's a tension between you know meaning and non-meaning that i, I that wyman's obsessed with and i think he's kind of triggered that in myself a little bit where i i want to i want to find those those philosophers and theologians that I have neglected for a long time and start wrestling with some of that stuff more explicitly. Cause I think I, you know, I've been busy, but I think a lot of us just, you repress it, you know, you repress those existential impulses. And I, I'd like to maybe do less of that in the new year. Uh, well, at the same time reading about like murder and swords and other fun things. If possible. Yeah. <laughs> if possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing we're going to read in the new year is the book we told you we were going to read last time, and we have both started, but it turns out it's a lot, and also we both have been very busy in the last few months. Yeah. Um, but we are doing um, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman, by Lawrence Stern, for our next regular podcast read. Uh, I think we're both about halfway through it, and it's, yeah. uh, it promises to be a Buckwild podcast, friend. It, really, it is a really weird book. <laughs> it really does start with, like, my mom and dad had the wrong kind of sex. Yes. <laughs> which explains my personality. <laughs> I, uh, it is so funny to read this mid 18th century book because there are moments when it will be like sort of because that's absolutely correct. Like yeah. he's describing his conception, oh, yeah. like the moment that happened, like when his everything gets came distracted. to fruition. Like, like somebody says something dumb and it distracts his dad. And so, but like he writes about it in sort of being oblique. Like he's not actually saying yeah. exactly what happens. Like a little bit of a discretion shot, and then later on, he just won't do that at all. Like he will just like he uses the word. Sh- a lot more than I yeah. was expecting for a mid-18th-century novel. <laughs> like, uh, it's going to be a fun podcast, I think. I think uh, so, too. But it'll be a minute before we get around to that. Um, 
I don't know if I have anything else in particular to say here at no. the end of our podcast. Yeah, so I think that's it, man. So thanks, as always, for listening to us ramble for a while. I hope this was fun. I hope I said something halfway interesting about the Book of the New Sun. I don't know. If I failed, I have... I'm not the first person to fail to say something interesting about the book of the new sun. <laughs> I'll also quote Brian Phillips. Here we go. Sorry. So we talked about Brian Phillips' obituary of Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. Brian Phillips in his obituary of Gene Wolfe says, um, people often say that it's weird that Gene Wolfe wrote the book of the new sun because Gene Wolfe was primarily an engineer who also helped invent Pringles. And, you know, how did he do that? And he says, well, the book of the new sun is weird. It's weird. Anybody wrote it. It's a bit like what would happen if St. Augustine and Henri Bergson collaborated to edit an edition of weird tale. <laughs> that's exactly right. I forgot that. And that's right. Uh, so anyway, just another plug for reading that really weird book. But um, thanks as always for listening to us. We are going to keep doing this for the foreseeable future. Hopefully this in-person podcast experiment was fun. Well, it was, it was fun. It was Hopefully fun for you enjoyed us. listening to it. <laughs> we, had a, we had a blast. <laughs> I don't know how you guys feel, but we had a blast. Um, well, We're doing Tristram Shandy next, and then we'll let you know what we're doing after that. So thanks, as always, for listening, friends. And uh, Joel, it's a little different saying bye because I'm not hanging up on you. (laughs) I know. But uh, bye, Joel. Bye, Bill. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.